Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Danny Parkin Show. Thank you very much for spending some time with me on your holiday weekend. My name is Danny Parkins. This is the Danny Parkins Show. We're coming to you live from the Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loan Studio. Rocket Mortgage is with you every step of the way to provide a seamless mortgage experience. I've given you my NFL predictions on the show. We've talked about parity or lack thereof in college football, why I wouldn't pay running backs and the interesting, to put it mildly, situation developing with the Houston Texans and what that tells us about how situation is as important as skill when it comes to succeeding in the ultimate team game, which is professional football. But I want to take a slight divergence from sports for a few minutes to talk about something that I find very interesting and I'm very passionate about and I think is useful and necessary, frankly, in terms of uh, public discourse in 2019. We're going to talk about it through the lens of stand-up comedy, but... It could happen in politics or music or sports or pop culture or really anywhere where dialogue happens publicly. People have a tendency to uh, make a mistake, step over a line, and then we judge them or pile on. And there's a little bit of an online mob mentality culture. People call it cancel culture. I don't really see a lot of people fully getting canceled all that often. But clearly we are operating in a time where... um, Painting outside the numbers is dangerous. And tolerance for mistakes, I think you could argue, is at an all-time low. And I don't think that's very healthy. So I want to discuss it because this is uh, the ultimate public forum. It's a national radio show. We're on a couple hundred radio stations here. And uh, I appreciate you giving me the time to do it. I don't know if you guys watched the latest Dave Chappelle special, Sticks and Stones on Netflix. There will be mild spoilers here, but I'm not really sure you can spoil a comedy special because, shockingly, I'm not going to be able to deliver any of it nearly as well as as Dave will. But I will say some of the topics that he discusses and some of the mechanisms at which he discusses them, I will say here. And so if that bothers you, you can come back in a few minutes. But I feel like a lot of the criticism that I've read of Dave Chappelle's latest special, Sticks and Stones, is missing the point. Vice flat out came out and said that you can skip this special. I firmly disagree. It was largely hilarious because, you know, he's Dave Chappelle. He's a funny dude. The Atlantic was very critical of it. The ringer called it predictable. The The responses have been interesting. They've been, there's been quite a few negative critiques of the special. And 
I encourage everyone to watch the entire thing and to watch the epilogue. It's an hour and five minute special, and then there's a 22 minute epilogue after the credits run. And I think when you take it in in its totality, it's fairly obvious what Dave is trying to do. Chappelle named his special Sticks and Stones. Sticks and Stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. Uh, He, in the blurb on Netflix describing the special, it is described as a defiant stand-up special. Dave Chappelle is trying to be as provocative as possible because he can and he believes in the comedic art form and the comedian's responsibility within that art form to do just that. Stand-up comedy is, was, and always has been a third-rail type of art form. Dave Chappelle jokes about school shootings in this special. He jokes about Kevin Hart and Louis C.K., And their scandals, he jokes again about trans people. He jokes again about R. Kelly. He jokes about Anthony Bourdain, mental health. He jokes about a lot of serious third rail issues. And I believe part of the reason why he is as sensationalistic or traditionally quote-unquote controversial in this special as he is, is because he can be. Right, Louis got into his controversy and did his wrongdoings, and he lost a show over it. Dave doesn't have a show. Kevin Hart wanted to host the Oscars, didn't handle the fallout from his 10-year-old tweets well, lost the Oscars. Dave doesn't want to host the Oscars. Chappelle left $50 million on the table with his Comedy Central show because he didn't like how he was being controlled. Now he's making more than $20 million a year for a Netflix special. Dave Chappelle has generational wealth, and he has no boss. So there's nothing you can take from him because he's not trying to get anything. He says in the epilogue at one point that he's asked about influential comedians, and he says that the comedians are like his family and that they were as influential in him as anyone else in his, in his entire life. So he is defending an art form that he sees as being under attacked. And I want to make it clear. I don't agree with everything that Dave said in the special. Far from it. But he's not running for political office. He's a comedian. He's telling jokes. It's not a campaign platform. So who knows what degree of sincerity there is in terms of whether or not he even believes what he's saying about the allegations against Michael Jackson or trans people or school shootings or whatever the topic du jour is. He's a comedian. They're not up there telling the truth. They're up there telling jokes. And I feel like people have lost that because comedy has always been really useful in times of tragedy. I remember after September 11th, Letterman came back, the Letterman monologue, Jon Stewart, The Daily Show coming back, hugely influential, Gilbert Gottfried telling the joke at the Friars Club roast of Hugh Hefner, the aristocrats, the whole thing. I mean, throughout history, comedy has been very healing in a lot of ways. And 
I think with Chappelle, the criticism that he got for jokes about trans people in the past, like, let me make it clear. Like, I don't agree if that's his real belief on the trans community. It's, it's offensive. It's punching down. They haven't had representatives to be in on the joke. It it could feel mean-spirited. And I am a straight, white, privileged man, right? Like, it, these, this is, it's easy for me to say. It's easy for me to laugh at. And I truly do understand that. I think that what Chappelle showed in that special, though, and if you've followed his career and you know anything about him personally that's really interesting, is so like Dave Chappelle told jokes about mass shootings, right? He's from a farm town, or he lives in a farm town in Ohio about 20 minutes from Dayton. When the recent mass shooting happened in Dayton, Chappelle organized this big block party and this big rally, and it raised a whole bunch of money for the victims' families from the school shootings. So Dave Chappelle, or from the from the mass shooting, excuse me. So like Dave Chappelle tells a joke about a mass shooting. Doesn't mean Dave Chappelle doesn't care about mass shootings. His actions showed you that. Dave Chappelle tells jokes about trans people. In the special, in the epilogue, there's this very powerful moment where he tells the story of meeting a trans person at one of his shows out in California, and he had he said he was nervous telling jokes because she was cracking up, cracking up, cracking up, and he's like, but I have some trans jokes coming, and told the jokes, and she cracked up, and the, sp- the, the set ended. It was at a small club in California, and she was sitting at the bar, and he went over to her, and her name is, I believe, Daphne. And he said, he introduced himself, and he's like, I just, you know, in case you want to wanted to apologize in case I offended you. And she said no, and they sat down, and he had a drink, and they got to know each other. And she said to him, and I'm paraphrasing from the special, you know, I know you've taken a lot of criticism for the jokes about trans people, and I remember reading in the New York Times when you told jokes about R. Kelly that the criticism was that you were normalizing R. Kelly. And Dave's like, yeah, they did say that. He's like, well, and and Daphne said to Dave, how come when you told jokes about trans people that they didn't write that you were normalizing us? And it was a tremendously powerful moment and anecdote, and he showed a picture of her in the credits at the end of the epilogue, so it wasn't made up. Like You knew that he had really had this interaction with this person, and she was there. And I just think it's interesting, like, I'm a big intent person, right? If your intent is to be mean-spirited or your intent is malice, well, then that's horrible. But if your intent is a comedian on a stage with a microphone at a comedy show where people are paying money to see you or I'm clicking on your special on Netflix, I'm signing up for jokes. Your intent isn't malice, when you're up on that stage as a comedian, your intent is laughter. That's common sense, right? It's not malice. If you do it to drive up hate and division along racial lines, sexual orientation, gender, whatever the case, and you're on the campaign trail, well, that's malice. If you're doing it with stand-up comedy, you're telling jokes. And I think we're missing that here. And so Dave seemed to go out of his way in the epilogue to talk to to show 
his relationship with this person of the trans community. Then he told, he showed, you know, was like, hey, by the way, you know, I'm friends with the Obamas and told the story about being with the governor of California and Kamala Harris and making a call to Obama and telling these crazy stories about that. Like, Dave is on the side politically of social justice and inclusion, has been for a long time. The issue with Dayton and the shootings, raise money there. You can Google Dave Chappelle charity. There are hundreds of examples supporting the arts, support, supporting victims of violence, support all sorts of different things. Seems to be a pretty good dude. And so I find it very interesting. Like, you don't have to like all of his jokes. You absolutely have the right to be offended. Of course, again, super easy for me to say, right? I am not the quote-unquote recipient of any of these jokes. But, like, I'm Jewish. I've laughed at Jewish jokes before. Like, that is possible. You don't have to. But if you're going to a comedy special or watching a comedy special and you're easily offended, like, Maybe it's not the medium for you, and that's totally fine, but to extrapolate it out and character assassinate the person or, frankly, like get too worked up over, like there are plenty of legitimate things to get worked up over in 2019. It strikes me as a very odd and misguided thing to get super bent out of shape over a comedian telling jokes into a microphone when that's really their job and I just think if you watch it part of what he's saying he's doing it intentionally he has this line in there where he says I don't think I've done anything wrong but we'll see he knew when he did this special that he labeled sticks and stones that was described on Netflix as being defiant he knew that people would put out the headline of Dave Chappelle jokes about trans people again, or Dave Chappelle jokes about mass shootings, or Dave Chappelle, uh, you know, questions Michael Jackson accusers, or whatever the the criticisms and the headlines are, he's doing it intentionally. It's almost like a troll, and people are falling for it hook, line, and sinker, and he's making a larger point, whereas the point is that he is not the problem. He's a comedian telling jokes, and I think that what happens nowadays is... People are either angry or they're scared or they're disenfranchised or whatever the case may be. And because those problems are so entrenched and so institutionalized and so generational and those can't be changed overnight that we lash on to like this person tweeted the wrong thing or this person told a joke that offended me. Well, it's like, okay, they did, but we've got to have room to learn and to grow and to have your actions speak for who you are and have like a totalitarian of your, of your work and have it mean something because he's shown a lot of good for a really long time. And so for people to, and for critics and comedian, comic writers and all that to, to kind to criticize the art form, I think it's just dangerous. I really do think I love stand-up comedy and I've read a ton of books about it and I, I would never say I'm a historian of it, but like I, I care about it a lot and I do think it matters and I think it's mattered throughout the history of our country and it's um it's dangerous to forget the intent. If the intent doesn't have malice and the intent is jokes and laughter, which 
undeniably it is, right? Stand-up comedian on a stage with a microphone doing a comedy special. I think we should judge it through that lens. And it was funny. But that's subjective. So it's your right to be offended if you want to. It's your right to think it was unfunny if you want to. And I'm not even saying that any comedian can't be held accountable for stuff like, right? Eddie Murphy's doing a comeback. He's going to get paid 70 million bucks. He's going to be interviewed to promote it. It's going to be fair to ask him about Raw and Delirious in the 80s and his views on homosexuality. It's fair game. I'm not saying that these guys are totally Teflon and beyond reproach. I'm just saying, remember the medium. Take in the body of work. Remember the intent. And if you come away from it saying, you know what? The intent was malice, then be mad. But I'm not sure how you could have watched that Chappelle special and thought that the intent was anything other than jokes and reflecting back on society and showing, hey, man, I'm not the problem here. There are huge problems. He talked about, you know, issues with women's rights and reproductive rights, and I don't want to get into the politics of it, but like he, he points out huge problems. But comedy and people stepping over the line, we've got to be able to grow. We've got to be able to make mistakes. We've got to be able to show intent. And just as someone with a microphone and a Twitter account and someone who I might make a mistake, it absolutely can happen. I have to be able to believe in the right to have discourse on this sort of thing. And I truly believe that comedy can be useful. So if you are a fan of Chappelle, I would recommend watching it all the way through to the end. Watch the epilogue and take it in as the whole because it's a comedy special that goes an hour and 27 minutes. But I think, by and large, it is a critique on where we are with public discourse in 2019. And frankly, I don't think it says a whole heck of a lot about us. Coming up next, I got a question about Carly Lloyd and becoming an NFL kicker that I think a lot of people are leaving out. And we'll get to last but not least. It's the Danny Parkin Show, CBS Sports Radio. Now back to the Danny Parkin Show. CBS Sports Radio's toll-free line is 855-212-4227. It's brought to you by Geico. Great news. There's a quick way you could save money. Switch to Geico. Go to geico.com, and in 15 minutes, you could save 15% or more on car insurance. So I'm fascinated by this Carly Lloyd NFL story on a number of levels. Uh, One, because being here in Chicago and being a Bears enthusiast, I know it's tough to find a kicker. Vikings fans know it's tough to find a kicker. Haven't had one since Blair Walsh, Browns fans, Panthers fans, Bears fans, lots of NFL teams going through the struggle right now of finding a kicker. What's really interesting to me about this story is how little it took for it to take off. Carly Lloyd, huge soccer star. And I listen, I will fully admit, I do not know. I'm not a soccer analyst. I enjoy watching the world cup. That's about it. Um, men's and women's, but I am certainly no expert when it comes to soccer, but I was surprised that Carly Lloyd making a 54 yard field goal through the narrow goalposts at uh, Ravens camp with no pads with the big run up was enough to get this entire thing in motion. And then I know there was the story about her having the offers for a tryout in a preseason game, but that conflicted with the U S national team and all of that stuff. But I was under the impression that, a lot of women on the U.S. women's national team would have been able to make that kick. So that's no shade on Carly Lloyd. Like, it was unbelievably impressive 
54 yards through the narrow uprights, but soccer players have been getting D1 scholarships for a long time as walk-ons. The kid from Nevada just made a 56-yard kick, and they gave him the scholarship right after the game. So I like, the only question that I am interested in off of Carly Lloyd beyond could she do it is I would love it if she could do it because there are clearly not 32 NFL caliber kickers in the NFL. Does Carly Lloyd have the best leg on the U.S. women's national team? I have no idea because I would have guessed that Megan Rapino could have made that kick or Alex Morgan could have made that kick or Julie Ertz could have made that kick. Maybe she has the strongest leg and I'm just wrong. But I don't think so. And so then the question would be, could, like, how many women on the U.S. women's national team could make that kick? And then what about on the men's national team? Like, is it possible that NFL teams haven't combed U.S. soccer, men's and women's, enough to find kickers? That strikes me as somewhat unlikely, just given the resources that NFL teams have and that soccer players becoming kickers is not abnormal. Like I said, it happens all the time in the collegiate ranks. And by the way, women have been D1 college football kickers. So like, I was surprised at how many people were surprised that this was a legitimate possibility. Like talking about her on tackling is ridiculous. Like the grammaticas aren't great tacklers either. Like that that's not the concern. I do think it would be challenging in the locker room and it would be talked about in the media and but you'd get over it. Like NFL locker rooms are more sophisticated than people give it credit for because they're more diverse than people give it credit for. White, black, rich, poor, conservative, liberal, different socioeconomic backgrounds, kids from cities, kids from rural areas. Like it's it's a melting pot. Not everybody gets along. Not everybody sees eye to eye on all sorts of things. So would there be some tension in some places? Maybe sure, but football's a meritocracy. The bears would have, if Carly Lloyd would have made that 43 yard kick, I promise you the bears would have been happy to have Carly Lloyd instead of Cody Parkey. So I don't think that would be a huge issue. Would it be a slight issue? Sure. Would it be an interesting thing for a kicker to have that much of a uh, circus-like media atmosphere around it because she is a genuine celebrity and a national icon in a lot of ways? Of course. It would be groundbreaking. It would be different. It would be inspirational. It would be incredible. I'm just a little surprised that people think that she'll be the one to do it because of one video where she ran up from five yards instead of two without pads in a practice. She's 37 years old. I know some kickers kick into their 40s, but that is still a rarity in the NFL. It's not the norm. Just because Vinatieri's 44 and uh, Vanderjack did it for a long time and Robbie Gold is doing it and Matt Bryant, Matt Bryant just got signed back on, it still is abnormal to be a kicker in your 40s. And Matt Bryant's top 15 in the NFL all-time in points, as is Vinatieri. He's top 10. Robbie Gold is, I think, somewhere between there. So it's, I mean, it's doable, but you have to be an all-time great NFL kicker to kick into your early 40s, and she's never done it before, and she's in her late 30s. So 
I would be surprised if Carly Lloyd is the first woman to kick in an NFL game. Not impossible, but I'd be surprised. But I would think that one of her younger teammates on the U.S. women's national team absolutely could be the person to do it. And I would wonder who has the strongest leg, and are there stronger legs on the men's national team that should be tried out too? Because the NFL's got a legitimate kicker problem. But talk about the power of social media. Carly Lloyd makes one field goal in one practice with no pads through narrow goalposts from 54 yards with an unconventional rollout, and she reportedly had two offers to kick in a preseason game and an invitation to training camp. That's how bad the kicking situation is in the NFL. So, yeah, could a woman be a kicker in the NFL? Of course. Will it be Carly Lloyd? I'd bet against it because that's just one kick of one video. But am I rooting for it? Hell yeah. That would be an incredible story. And seemingly one that NFL teams are really open to, which frankly is awesome. We'll get to last but not least coming up. Now back to the Danny Parkin Show. With time running out, we still have a few questions we didn't get answers to. Danny Parkins gives us his thoughts on a couple of different stories in this week's edition of Last But Not Least. All right, thanks for hanging out. This is where I turn it over to my man, Ryan Hickey, the executive producer of this program. He usually asks three or four questions before we get out of here, topics I otherwise wasn't able to get to before we pass the baton to After Hours with Amy Lawrence. Ryan, what do you got for me? All right, Daniel, we'll start with baseball as Justin Verlander threw his third career no-hitter against the Blue Jays on Sunday. Crazy part was he just allowed one base runner, just a first-inning walk, so it was perfect after that. He's the sixth pitcher in MLB history to throw three no-hitters in his career. So with all those accolades, all that success, is he the best pitcher of our generation? No. I've got to still give it to Clayton Kershaw. But Verlander is amazing. He is ageless. And I do wonder what his numbers would be this year if the ball wasn't juiced. If we'd be talking about, you know, Pedro Martinez, best season of the last 40 years type stuff. His whip is now under .8 after today's game with a juiced ball at 36 in the American League. It's just ridiculous. Verlander is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Verlander is this generation's Nolan Ryan. Like, the amount of praise I can give to Justin Verlander, the superlatives you can attach to him are basically limitless. But best pitcher of his generation, I think, still has to go to Clayton Kershaw. Verlander's been a Cy Young winner only once. Kershaw has won the Cy Young three different times and finished second two other times. He also won an MVP one of his Cy Young years. Verlander won the MVP of the year that he won the Cy Young, but has only one Cy Young win. So three Cy Youngs to one, Kershaw to Verlander. Kershaw five years younger than Verlander. And if you go by war, wins above replacement, Verlander is at nearly 70 wins above replacement and Kershaw is at 65 wins above replacement in 12 big league seasons compared to this is uh, the 16th for Verlander and Kershaw being five years younger than him. So Verlander is amazing. Verlander is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Verlander is this generation's Nolan Ryan. 
I can't give him much higher praise than that, but I can't give him best pitcher of his era because Kershaw still has that. But I will say Kershaw's had a little bit more injury problems recently since he's been on the wrong side of 30. So if he doesn't age into his 30s well, then it's certainly possible. But Kershaw has been an MVP or excuse me, an all-star seven of the last eight years or excuse me, eight of the last nine years. I'm terrible at math. So it's not like Kershaw is not still on a roll. So I, I expect Kershaw to continue with his dominance and continue to be the best pitcher of his era. But Verlander is second. What's next? So the Chargers made some news as they're allowing Melvin Gordon to seek a trade. Uh, just, you know, catch those up in case you missed it. Or just to recap, Melvin Gordon playing on the fifth-year option, getting about $5.6 million, wants a new contract to be sort of near the top of the running back market in the 13 to $14 million range. Did reject earlier a uh, offer from the Chargers for $10 million a year. Now, teams, if you're going to trade for him, obviously you have to assume that you'll give him a new contract as well. So all that kind of laid out, what team is out there that you think should trade for Melvin Gordon? It's brutally tough. He is in a terrible situation. The Chargers, frankly, are the team that is best suited for Melvin Gordon, and that's why they have all the leverage. Honestly. Because if you're a bad team, you don't want to give up a lot for him. So then you look at competing teams and like, would he be an upgrade over James Conner in Pittsburgh? Probably slightly, but James Conner is really cheap and at 1500 yards from scrimmage last season. So like that one jumps out to me as that's possible. Uh, Adding him to the backfield mix in Baltimore where they're trying to run the ball 35 times a game. Baltimore is really appealing, but is, does the Chargers want to keep him, uh, even trade him within the conference? I wouldn't think so. Then you start thinking about NFC teams. I don't think there's an NFC North team that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. Tampa makes some sense to me with Bruce Arians, but are they going to make a big investment in a running back when they want to pass the ball down the field as much and he's not as much of a pass catcher out of the backfield? So there are bad teams that I could put them on, but a bad team isn't going to trade for a running back who's about to get paid seriously. So the problem is when you go through all of the teams and then you eliminate the bad ones and then you eliminate some of the AFC contenders, you realize that the Chargers are by far the best fit for Melvin Gordon. My guess is Melvin Gordon goes back to the Chargers on a deal below his market value, but it takes a while. I think that I think Zeke's holdout ends before the year starts. I think Melvin Gordon's holdout goes on a long, long time. What's next? So there's a sale of an MLB team that went down this week as Kansas City Royals owner David Glass had decided after 19 seasons he was willing to sell the team, and it seems like John Sherman, who right now is the vice chairman of the Cleveland Indians, is set to be the new owner. The reported sale price went over for, went over $1 billion, and the sale will be made uh, official in November, assuming he will be approved by the other 29 owners and Major League Baseball. So this sale going down, anything really stick out to you? Yeah, two things. One, I was right. In uh, 2012, I got suspended and in trouble for being on the home of the Royals and uh, asking David Glass at the All-Star Game on a stage at FanFest in a live radio interview if he would consider selling the team 
Didn't go over so hot on the home of the Royals. Probably was the wrong time or place, but I stand by the questioning. There had been a story in the paper about how the guys who run Cerner and own the MLS team in town were interested in buying if they ever came for sale. It was an impromptu interview. I was making virtually no money at the time and had virtually no clout. And uh, frankly, it's a little bit of a miracle that I survived it because he got up, did not answer the question, put the microphone down and walked off the stage. It was a hell of a thing. Um, So me and David Glass have a history, but I will say... David Glass was a cheap, bad owner for a long time until he wasn't. And then he invested, and he hired Dayton Moore, and they had a hell of a run, and they went to -to back-to-back World Series, and he brought a championship to Kansas City. But his biggest legacy is going to be who he sold it to, because the reports are that David Glass's health is failing, and the thoughts were that he was going to give the team to his younger son, Dan Glass, who might have been a little bit outclassed from a business standpoint. Uh, as an owner within Major League Baseball. David Glass bought the team from Ewing Kaufman to be the second owner of the history of the Royals with the provision from Mr. Kaufman that David Glass keep the team in Kansas City. So David Glass got a sweetheart deal. He bought the team for like 95, 96 million bucks. He just turned around and sold them less than like, what, 20 years later for over a billion. But he sold it to John Sherman, who's a Kansas Cityan, who's going to keep the team in Kansas City. When you're a small market team that's on the receiving end of revenue sharing, it is really, really important to those fans that the owner is a hometown guy who wants to invest in the team. So the fact that David Glass not only won a World Series as owner of the Royals, not only won a second pennant as the owner of the Royals, but that he sold to a local ownership group and frankly there are not a lot of billionaires in kansas city but a baseball fan with ownership experience who's a royals fan who can afford the team who wants to keep the team in kansas city i'm so happy for royals fans and i'm so happy for kansas city that is the best possible outcome of a sale of the kansas city royals so david glass's ultimate legacy will be one of immense immense success in kansas city so good on david glass And I hope his health works out because I have heard and read reports that his health being failing is what led to the accelerated sale there. So I hope everything goes okay with that. But regardless, his legacy will be one of a champion and keeping baseball in Kansas City. It's a great legacy to have. Give me the last question and last but not least. All right, finally, Danny, the 100th NFL season opens up Thursday right in your backyard in Chicago. Bears-Packers gets us kicked off. Bears three-point favorites. So simply, who's going to win? Man, I love this. We are here. By the time I'm on next Sunday, NFL Week 1 will be in the books. Sunday Night Football will be wrapping up at the start of the show. Bears-Packers on Thursday. I'll be going to the game. I'm picking the Bears in a low-scoring game. I think... Matt LaFleur will be a huge upgrade for Aaron Rodgers, but it'll take a little bit of time for them to get going. And I think that the Bears defense is the best unit on the field, but the Packers defense is underrated now. Jair Alexander, I think, is a future all-pro, not pro Bowl, or all-pro at corner. Kenny Clark is amazing. I think the Packers are actually an underrated defensive team this year. And that game's going to be a low-scoring, like 20-17, to 17-14 type of affair. 
and the beauty of it will be when Eddie Pinheiro kicks the game-winning field goal for the Bears to totally exercise the demon of Cody Parkey's double doink, and the Bears win on a game-winning field goal in a low-scoring game at Soldier Field. Best unit on the field is the Bears' defense. Best player on the field is still Aaron Rodgers, followed very closely by Khalil Mack. But home field advantage, coaching experience, Matt LaFleur's first game as the head coach, defense, and a field goal is the difference. I have the Bears winning that game by a low-scoring game. I like the under. Bears by a field goal. I would not lay the three points in this game because I do think it is the definition of a toss-up. How sick is it that the NFL is back, by the way? Bears, Eagles, Falcons, Seahawks, my division winners in the NFC, Rams and Packers, my wild cards in the AFC, Browns, Patriots, Jaguars, and Chiefs. Jaguars, my long shot pick this year to win a division. Chargers and Ravens, my wild card teams in the AFC. I have Chiefs over Bears in the Super Bowl. Pat Mahomes, your MVP. Kyler Murray, your offensive rookie of the year. Josh Allen, your defensive rookie of the year. Doug Marone your coach of the year for the Jacksonville Jaguars. It is going to be an incredible NFL season. I cannot wait to get it started in full force. The league is in such a healthy place with quarterbacking, even in the uh, post-Andrew Luck world, because he was going to be the leader, him and Mahomes, leading in the 30 and under QB crowd with the surprising retirement of Luck. It gets put on an even younger generation. I mean, Obviously, Brady and Roethlisberger and Breeze and Rivers are still around, but this is going to be Mahomes and Watson and Wentz's league sooner than later and uh, Mayfield's league, and I cannot wait for it. Thank you to Barton Simmons, terrific college football writer, and Mike Meltzer, media star in Houston, for joining the show. Dave Edinger and Antonio Grillo kept me on the air. Peter Schwartz handled the updates. Ryan Hickey is my talented executive producer. My name is Danny Parkins. This is the Danny Parkins Show on CBS Sports Radio. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.